Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe – and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. And a word of warning, the episode you're about to hear includes discussion about some topics that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help or support, please contact the 1800 Respect Helpline or Lifeline on 13 11 14. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far... Can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! Crazy, speak up about it, mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the Maker series. I'm Virginia Hausiger. And it's lovely to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy housed at Canberra's Old Parliament House, where I've had the wonderful honour of guest curating a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. So in this series, we dive into the personal stories of some of those outstanding women, both young and old and spanning a diverse range of backgrounds. And while their stories are incredibly different, there is, I reckon, there's a consistent theme that keeps coming through, and it's a theme of courage. Incredible courage. So to each of these women, I asked them about the moment that fired them into action. I asked them about the biggest challenge they've battled along the way, their failures, the source of their inspiration, and then importantly, the cost, the personal cost they've paid in their determination to create and build change. So stick with us for this series as you're in for a feast of raw, real, and very 
very inspiring stories. You can download Broad Talk and a new episode will drop into your feed each Friday. And reach out and let us know your thoughts. You can email hello at broadtalk.net. You can find us on Insta at Broad Talkers, Facebook, just look for Broad Talk. And you can always find me on Twitter, Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S. And you can drop into the broadtalk.net website and subscribe to my newsletter and I'll send you an occasional update, only occasional, on an update on what's going on and what's happening and, and perhaps share a little bit of what's playing on my mind. But right now I can't wait to take a deep dive into a big chat with a woman I've been so looking forward to meeting and to speaking with, and that, of course, is Chanel Contos. Chanel's a young Australian woman who is currently... Uh, as we speak, living in London. She's just finished her master's degree. But back home, Chanel will be a name familiar to you as the founder and driver of the phenomenally successful Teach Us Consent campaign. Chanel shot to fame in February 2021 when she fired off an Instagram post. The very simple question aimed at Sydney schoolgirls or schoolgirls in general and recent graduates of private schools, and the simple question was, have you or has anyone close to you ever experienced sexual assault from someone who went to an all-boys school? Now, while it was just a post and it was just a question, the response was extraordinary. So I'm going to get her to tell us all about it. Chanel, hello, and thank you for joining Broad Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honoured to be part of the series. Oh, thank you. It is so, so lovely to to finally catch up with you. Now, let's just dive in. And I know you've told this story a number of times, but for those um, broad talkers listening who aren't that familiar with it, tell us about what happened. You put out that post in February. Tell us why you put it out and what happened. So there's a few, there's kind of a few pivotal moments that led to me posting publicly on Instagram about sexual assault and the first one was actually in 2020 when I was with some girls who we all went to different schools in Sydney's eastern suburbs but grew up together I'm sorry gonna have to excuse my voice I've got terrible hay fever this morning here in London that's all right you can blow your nose sneeze away or cough that's fine (laughs) so it was with a group of girls we all grew up together and the kind of scene that's present in Sydney's schools, especially amongst those kind of eastern suburb schools, is very much everyone knows each other. On weekends, you all hang out with each other. It's not as if you just hang out with people who go to your school. And anyway, that meant that we had a lot of the same experiences and went to the same parties and hung out with the same people. And I actually have no idea how it came up, but essentially sexual assault came up. And we were kind of talking about how it's so weird that all these guys who in hindsight, we know that what happened is actually sexual assault, but they're still socialized with us and we're still friends with them. And, you know, we know they've sexually assaulted our friend, but they're still part of our social circle. And then in that conversation, I ended up telling my story of sexual assault. And because this was, you know, with three close friends, I I named the boy. And when I told the story, I named the boy, Another one of my friends said, wait, that, that wasn't you. That happened to a named, um, named a mutual friend of ours. And I was like, oh, I'm pretty sure it was me that I happened to. <laughs> and she was like, that's insane. That exact same story with that exact same boy happened to 
again, our mutual friend. And I remember going to bed that night and just being like, not being able to sleep, being all clammy and sweaty and stressed and shaky and texting my brother. Cause he was living in London and he was still awake. Um, cause it was like three or four AM in like Sydney time. And just being like, oh my God, if I had known what it was with sexual assault, I would have done something, whether that be, I probably wouldn't have reported him to the police. I don't know if I would have reported him to my parents, but I think I would have told friends. I think I would have held him accountable. I potentially would have told you know, the school counselor or something. And that would have prevented that from happening to my friend a year so later. So h- how old were you at the time? So when I was sexually assaulted, I was 13 years old. But I 13. didn't know. Yeah, I was a little baby. Well, <laughs> again, year old girls now, I'm like, oh, oh my god, yeah. So something happened. We don't need to go into the details, but it was pretty awful for you, and it, it happened. You kind of thought it was normal, and let it go, although you felt shit. Yeah, and the reason I thought it was normal was because he was someone I knew and trusted. You know, someone I had a massive crush on. Uh, he was a few years older. I had this very concrete idea of kind of what a perpetrator of sexual assault would look like. And that was someone who would be a stranger, someone who would be dangerous, someone who'd be violent. And he didn't fit any of those categories. So Mm. it never crossed my mind for a second. Um, Although it felt very wrong, it didn't cross my mind. It was illegal. So when you got talking with uh, your girlfriends a couple of years down the track and you realised that all of you had experienced various forms of sexual assault, even rape some of them, from boys at school, at at the private schools that you used to socialise with and that you were still socialising with some of those boys. What was the the, the sort of the the aha moment, though, that made you realise you actually needed to call out to others and ask others if they'd also experienced that? So basically that that next day, um, after staying up all night distressed, I started collecting testimonies of rape and sexual assault and I just texted my friends who I knew had been raped or sexually assaulted and asked them to send in testimonies that detailed the name of the school but not the individual um, for the purpose of taking these to the school and saying you need to give us consent education earlier because this is a problem that's happening in front of your eyes. And anyway... I had a few testimonies. I didn't take it publicly. I just spoke to friends individually. And then I got sidetracked. I got into UCL. I moved to London and did my master's. It was kind of like this collection of testimonies I had, but I wasn't really sure what to do with them or when to do something with it. And then my aha moment was essentially I was with my friend who I witnessed um, them being raped when we were about 15. And again, we didn't know what it was. We didn't think much of it we were the ones who got kicked out of that party because me and my other friend stopped that rape and anyway we were just together in London and my friend was crying to me about the situation and then it started making me it made me start crying about the situation and it was just this moment of being like oh my god here's us almost you know like 10 12 years after being raped by these boys and where we're still experiencing the repercussions of it and they don't even know they've done it to us. They get to walk through life guilt-free, consequence-free, absolutely nothing because they are literally so uneducated on what consent is and the repercussions of their actions that they have no idea that this has been something that's stuck with us for years. 
And then in that moment of like extreme anger, like, you know, tears were kind of running down our face, like again, shaking, being all clammy. That's when I posted um, my Instagram story and decided I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to collect more testimonies. And then I'm going to go to the principals of the schools in our area and say, you know, you're some of the most well-resourced schools in the country. Why are you not bothering to invest in this form of education that's so fundamental to the human spirit. And what you did really took off and it took off really quickly and before you know it, media was onto it because we're all hearing about this this young Sydney woman who had put out this post, it had gone viral. You weren't just getting some testimonies, you were getting thousands and thousands. I jumped online and started reading them and I was gobsmacked at what I was reading and horrified at just the just the omnipresence of this culture that mm-hmm. I had no idea young women such as yourself or you know any any Australian young women were part of and 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 horrified by the actions of boys now you said at one stage in an interview after um this story broke you said i've lived in three countries and i've never heard people talk about experiencing rape culture the way me and my friends did growing up in sydney and attending private schools what do you mean by rape culture what i mean by rape culture is i mean we've created a sociological setting where we've allowed rape and minor acts of sexual violence to become pervasive through our attitudes and expectations of people's genders and sexuality and what this is meant to mean. So what I mean by rape culture is we've you know normalized and romanticized ongoing romantic advances by men and we normalize and romanticize the idea that girls should always say no and that you know their sexuality is something that should be you know they should remain pure and there's a taboo around it and I mean that we've normalized a situation where we victim blame because the default questions when someone comes forward with sexual assault are things like were you drunk what were you wearing Mm. why are you only talking Mm. about this now it means that all the micro things that happen in day-to-day life, you know, like I don't – I think it would be very, 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 very rare to find a young girl who hasn't experienced catcalling in their life and that's sexual harassment and that's rape culture, the fact that our society thinks it's so normal to sexualize a young girl, especially one in school uniform. But at the same time, if you were a young boy and you called out your friend for catcalling someone – you'd mm. probably get, you know, paid out a little bit for being like, oh, you know, you're such a, like, whatever. And that's rape culture. The fact it's more socially acceptable to sexually harass someone than it is to call up on it. And what mm. that's done is that's laid the foundations, you know, all that locker room talk, all that slut shaming, all that victim blaming is laid the foundations for when someone is sexually assaulted for it to not be a big thing. You you surprised me when I when I heard you um, uh, on radio actually talking about this issue not long after your story went viral, and you really surprised me when um, I then happened to be actually for Broad Talk I was interviewing um, uh, Isabel Marshall, the Young Australian of the Year, and her her buddy um, Eloise Hall, who are the founders of a social enterprise group Taboo all about period poverty. And I put to them, because this was still very new, I put to them some of the things that you'd been saying uh, because I was so shocked to hear that this culture existed in schools. Mm. And they both shocked me by saying, 
not only had they witnessed this and fully understood it, but how lucky they were, the two of them, that they hadn't actually been raped. How, mm. And they said, oh, you know, and I said, have you experienced this? And they, and they said, oh, no, we're, we're really lucky. And I thought, how could you be saying as young Australian women, you're lucky because you haven't been raped? I've heard that countless times, countless times. There's nothing lucky about that. I mean, it, it, I mean that that says to me that this culture is so entrenched that, well, as you say, that we just don't. It's ubiquitous, and we don't acknowledge it. Um, but then, going on to something else that surprised me that you wrote, I think it was in the Guardian, or might have been the New York Times, when you spoke about yourself talking about this culture, and you said, "I'm inherently misogynistic. I grew up in a world that was deeply." rooted has deep rooted sexism in all of its structures and you go on to say how you've done things like um, calling girls sluts and making assumptions about girls because of what they wear and um, you know criticizing girls for being frigid and all that sort of stuff which I thought was very honest of you and then you go on to say um, <laughs> I I know I made my friends feel insecure about the level of sexual activity of course I did all these things because everyone I knew did yeah. That's so Yeah, sad. I mean. What's going on there? Yeah. What's going on there? Well, it's rape culture. It's the culture we've created. It's, you know, a setting where we've made it so for boys, they get social status roles of sexual activity and the girls want to be the cool girl and want to be accepted by the boys so they opt into it and, you know, we're taught to internally be competitive with other women and want to bring them down and to rate women and young girls value on their sexuality and all these sort of things. And I mean, yeah, like I, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that of course, while individuals still need to be held accountable for the type of thing they've done within this culture, um, cause you know, there's still lots of people who have never raped someone, it's important to understand that we've all contributed it to in some way and upheld it in some way because why would we not? Because it's the absolute default. It's the same, you know, it's kind of the same thing with the Black Lives Matter movement. It kind of switched the lens from the normal thing to say being I'm not racist to I acknowledge that of course I see race because I grew up in this setting. I'm going to try to be anti-racist and actively unlearn those things. That's exactly what needs to go on here. There's no point being like, oh, I'm not a misogynist. There's no point being like, oh, I don't at all contribute to rape culture. I'm perfect. Instead, it's much more important to be like, actually, I've seen people be catcalled multiple times and not done anything about it, and I'm going to now actively try to do better in that sense. In reading through some of your writing, I find myself also wondering about the the boys, the young men that you associate with, socialise with, as to what's going on in their heads. What do they really think of their their, their mothers, their sisters, you mm. know, their friends? Um if they exist in this kind of culture, what, what what do you think about that? How have boys responded or men responded? I was actually really pleased with the response from men that I received, especially most of the ones in my life. I think the problem is that, you know, men wouldn't catcall their cousin or men wouldn't let their friend catcall their sister because – a lot of this rape culture has to do with the socialization of strict gender norms of boys and girls and the way that fundamentally we raise girls to be over empathetic and boys to not have much empathy. I think that men can, can understand the implications of things on women in their immediate sphere and people who matter to them. I think the problem is they're not thinking about women as 
human beings in all senses of the world uh, word and I you know there's lots of there's been lots of speeches and things by you know young boys where they say like oh come on boys imagine if this was your mom and it's like is it not enough to just think that this is a, a person like a real living person um but I think that it's been a massive time of reflection especially for you know private school Sydney boys because there's not a single school in Sydney that it didn't go rampant through and you know there were hundreds of like with Scots and Cranbrook, two of the big Sydney schools combined, there were 500 testimonies naming mm. them as the perpetrator school. Um, so, like, that's an actual epidemic problem. That's not um, – and that's a culture and it's not a coincidence mm. that that's happening. Can I ask you this? You, you mentioned a moment ago you thought, I will I will put this out there and then I will go around and talk to principals. Why you? What, what made you think that you could do that and that they would listen to you? Well, I didn't think they would listen to me. That's why I needed the testimonies. Um, <laughs> that's why I needed tens of thousands of the people evidence. to sign the petition, and that's why I needed, you know, at the at the time, my intention was to have a couple of dozen testimonies to go with them. And I don't know, I just I hope they would listen to me out of out of the ultimate care for their students and the type of behaviours their students were exhibiting. That you know, they would undoubtedly regret later in life. But some schools did, and some schools still haven't. So I guess. The- Mm, I, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but, you know, what you experienced and the conversations you were having with your girlfriends probably have been conversations and experiences that have been repeated thousands of times and yet you're the one who stood up and said, I'm going to do something about this and I'm going to see it through. And you do see it through because that first initial response was overwhelming and there was a lot of media. You could have left it at that. You didn't. You pushed on. What made you push on and say, we can make this even bigger? Well, first of all, it was the support that I was offered at kind of a pivotal time, which was amazing. You know, like a friend offering to build a website for me and other people coming in and being like, we'll help you with branding and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of like, you know, myself and mentally pushing on, it was just like, this is just such a simple solution to such a drastic problem. Australia has one of the best education systems in the world. There's evidence that shows that ongoing holistic and you know consistent consent education prevents sexual violence in communities there's this idea of australia as this idealistic country but in reality we've enabled human rights violations to pervade under this umbrella of equality and it's it's just it just doesn't need to happen anymore and there is a solution and the solution can be administered at scale and prevent violence at scale because this problem is being perpetrated at scale not because of malice not because there's 7,000 teenage boys who are rapists who were in the education system you know it's because there were 7,000 boys who were mimicking their surroundings and just being products of their own environment so we just need to shift that environment and have active discourse to tell them about healthy intimacy in order to prevent the suffering of millions of Australians. Well You've certainly done that and changed, shifted the dial and changed uh, uh, the landscape for younger girls and for all our daughters and our granddaughters, etc. And I think, you know, Australia owes you a big debt for that. I want to take a short break and then come back and have a chat about how you did what you did because it's it's really quite fascinating, a masterclass in in campaigning, I think. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> Thank you. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Chanel, we've talked about the why, but I want to get into the how now. So you campaigned to golf. There was huge media interest. You decided to step it up. You've given really good reasons as to why that was possible. The solution was there. And people offered you support. How did you end up partnershiping, uh, partnering with um, government bodies, education ministers, even the police in New South Wales to, to really build this idea? Idea on which Teach Us Consent was based. How did those partnerships happen? They just happen. They happen slowly, incrementally, and then exponentially. <laughs> so, you know, people would message me and say, "Hey, my godfather is David Shoebridge, and he's a Greens MP and based in the area. Do you want to speak to him?" And then I'd meet him, and he was like, "Oh, speak to this person, Legislative Council." And then, you know. I I can't remember if I reached out to Dave Sharma or if he reached out to me, but he was the MP of Wentworth, which is my electorate in Sydney, which is also, you know, highly concentrated for private schools and um, people who go to those sort of schools. And I remember being so nervous for our first ever mm-hmm. meeting, like <laughs> just like being like, oh, my God, I've got to make sure that I look presentable on Zoom and having all these notes and stuff. And then, you know, by the end of – by the end of the year, you know, walking in Parliament House and like yelling out, being like, hey, it's <laughs> um, <laughs> been big change. But it was just, yeah, slowly one by one got introduced to people. And then the, I think a big pivotal moment was Sarah Hansen Young took a real interest in um, the campaign and a passion in it. And uh, she arranged a federal briefing. So for me to speak to, any politician who wanted to attend from federal parliament, I think about 50 or so attended, wow. which is pretty impressive. That yeah. is huge. Yeah, it was really it was really cool. It was actually quite surreal in hindsight. It was like 3 a.m. in London time or something. And I was, wow. Obviously, I wasn't going to be picky about the time um, <laughs> and just kind of sitting in my little room at the end and just ending it being like, wow, that just happened. Um, but, yeah, and <laughs> that, you know, because this, this was never a political issue. We never made it a political issue. That was co-hosted by also Liberal and Labour MPs to make sure that there was, you know, wide attendance from across the spectrum. And a lot of that talk was, yeah, educational and then with policy recommendations. And then after that, you know, the next day I got an email from the Prime Minister's office. I'd previously asked to meet him and um, he had previously, well, not he, but his team had previously declined. Then they'd reached out again saying the Prime Minister would like to meet with you. And it was just bigger, like this big, oh, this is going to happen moment. 
Um, mm. And then the other pivotal thing was working closely with the Australian Curriculum and Reporting Authority body. Um, but it was also kind of just ideal timing because – you know, there was Grace Tane, there was Brittany Higgins in the media, meaning that sexual assault was dominating media discourse. The Australian curriculum, by some absolute heavenly lucky chance, was being reviewed, which only happens once every five years. So it was possible to even enact this change, whereas if it was a year before or after, it would have been a long time period. And just because it was just such an issue that resonated with people, I feel like it lifted, it opened a can of worms because. So I I know you said I don't need to go into it before, but I'll go into it um, briefly and I guess quick trigger warning. When I was sexually assaulted, the way I was sexually assaulted was um, it was minimal physical violence. It was more of a, you know, a head push kind of thing. Um, It was more the fact that I was like frozen or, you know, fawning in that moment where I wasn't like screaming and kicking and saying no. I was just like a bit stressed because, again, I was a 13-year-old girl the only, you know, at this point in my life, I thought that sperm was a singular cell because that's all I had been told by biology classes that a, you know, sperm fertilizes an egg. Um, and it was, it was oral rape, which I didn't even know counted as rape. And again, because this was a boy that I knew and trusted, it didn't make sense for me for that to be a situation of, um, yeah, sexual assault or anything illegal. And, realizing that that actually was a very valid experience of sexual assault. And again, the word rape is so loaded, but that is legally and technically, you know, seen as right. oh, mm-hmm. in Australia, we don't have rape in our legal system. We only have sexual assault, but in you know, the UK that's, that's rape. And by definition, that's rape. And um, I think what I did was open an avenue for people who had been victims of nonviolent sexual assault to be like, Oh yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't cool. And just that collective voice and over the year, just constantly seeing all these people being willing to speak up about it and talk about it and talk about the intricacies of their experience and why that meant this and start home conversations. It just accumulated to the point where it was kind of, it wasn't an issue that could be ignored for politicians. Mm. And again, because the whole time from day one, it had such a specific ask. The petition said, petition for earlier and holistic consent education to be mandated in Australian schools, that ask never changed, not once throughout the whole process. Mm, mm. And, and it was very clear too, I've got to say, and that's something that I was really impressed by too. It was unambiguous. It was very, very clear. You know, it's, it's not surprising that 45,000 people signed that petition very quickly. Yeah. And then it was, it was a specific, you know, it was a very specific thing for policymakers to enact. Tell me this though, as those testimonials were, were, were rolling in and, and this, this, this issue was really building and you were very much a, you know, the media focus of it, how did you keep going? Because there must have been times when you just thought, I can't keep doing this or I can't keep reading these testimonials and I'm exhausted. Now, I know this is something that just about every change maker grapples with at some stage, some change makers all the time. How did you deal with that? Oh my god! But you know, I would not wish it on my worst enemy. <laughs> it was terrible. And to be honest, I didn't deal with it until about three weeks ago. Um, I just was running on adrenaline and just kept going. But I don't know. At first, I was just quite numb to the testimonies, um, mainly because another none of them was surprising to me. I knew that this happened at scale. Um, but then they, it kind of did start to get to me without me even knowing i experienced lots of vicarious trauma which i didn't even know that was before this petition started um but you know it was really emotionally 
draining. Um, it was exhausting. I was doing media till 3, 4 a.m. some nights and then up again at 7 a.m. to do other things like, you know, podcast media again. Would crash for a few hours and then wake up at 4 p.m. do my master's till 10 p.m. And then as soon as Sydney woke up, starting I, I, I'm having experiencing trauma just hearing it, I think. <laughs> I know that feeling of running on adrenaline. You can, but you can only do it for so long until you flame out. Um, yeah, yeah, and and it, it can then become uh, the whole issue that you're working on can become a trigger in itself, and that's what I worry about. You know. Then again, I was sorry. I did identify pretty early on that the, reading the testimonies were a massive trigger, but they had to be read for defamation. They kept getting defamation cases against me. I didn't even, again, I didn't even know anything about defamation before this happened. So you were getting threats of, of being sued? Yeah, yeah. And um, and that wasn't enough to make you stop, though, to, to pull your head in and say, I can't do oh this anymore? Oh, God, it was the most motivating thing in the world. Do you know how funny it is getting a lawyer, like, email from a lawyer being like, this testimony so clearly identifies my client. <laughs> it's, like, literally <laughs> the most ambiguous story in the world. And you're like, oh, yeah, right, so your client's a rapist, thanks. Um, it's just, like, delete it and whatever. Like, it's, no, I mean, if you want to take a, de- a defamation case against me, people are going to pay a lot more attention to your story than they would on a website of 7,000 things. But no, I was had an amazing team of pro bono lawyers behind me who my defamation lawyer was probably like squirming every single time I posted something on Instagram. Um, and- <laughs> I was just going to say that huge group of people that are behind you and and I, I've noticed on your website, Teachers Consent, you've got advisory groups, you've got you know expertise um, sort of coming out your ears really with people working with you. Again, how did you, at you know, all of 22 or so at the time, at 23, um, how did you amass that kind of group and, and corral everyone into, you know, a focused um, campaign? I reached out to these people, you know, some of them I already knew. The first person I called when this whole thing started kicking off was my best friend's mom, um, who's one of the advisors, um, Nikki McWilliam. She's a, you know, lawyer, mediator. And also just a, like, you know, massive figure in my life. And I was like, what? Like, what What do I do? What's going on? And her recommendation was advisory board ASAP. Like, you just mm. need people that you can ask questions to. And then um, there were a few, like, obvious people to reach out to. There were a few people who then connected me to people. And if I felt like I vibed with the person and they had my best interest at heart and were really passionate about the teacher's consent campaign, I would ask if they would want to come on an advisory capacity if I saw like a lot of the academics, I got onto their work either through research that I'd done before or um, I would see them write an op-ed or something about the topic. So I knew that they knew about this petition and I guess because of the media attention, when I reached out to them, they were happy to reply. And I mean, everyone was just happy to get on board because it's just an issue that you know, people have been banging on about this for mm. decades and it's not an innovative idea or anything. It's just I think the traction it was getting through the thousands that stood up at once. Well, you, you say it's not an innovative idea. The way you went about it I think is innovative. Um, mm. the, the, you know, the use of social media, the use of Instagram in particular, then setting up a website really quickly that enabled people, it was very clear and clean, enabled people to upload their testimony straight away and to sign a petition. I mean, all of that was innovative. But there's something that, that I've been curious about all along is why you kept branding it 
as you. I notice in all the collateral you're named as the founder of Teach Us, the Teach Us Consent campaign. In all the media, you are the spokesperson. And I'm just wondering, because this sort of contrasts with a lot of early um, second wave feminist and women's liberation campaigns where the collective was terribly important and it wasn't about one person and and leadership was usually shared. Um, quite contrary to that, you've, you've taken very much, this is the Chanel Contos campaign. Mm. Has that been a conscious thing? And, and, and do you, have you not ever thought at some stage perhaps I should share this leadership around? Yeah, so... It's important to remember that this happened by accident. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I posted on social media, I was anticipating to get a couple of, yeah, a couple of dozen at max testimonies to take to my school principal and the two neighbouring boys' schools. Um, and then it just kicked off. And then it's also important um, to understand that this company, Teachers Consent, existed months after the movement started it all happened on my own personal Instagram profile for the majority of it. And when it was getting the most traction and the most media attention and basically whilst the collective is obviously insanely important and that's what's made this happen. The thing with sexual assault is it's a lot of people, there's a taboo around it. It's, um, you know, I think it's so funny whenever I see someone being reported in the media as a victim of sexual assault and thinking like, oh, are you aware that like one in five Australian women over the age of 15 are sexual assault survivors, but we don't just refer to everyone as a survivor of sexual assault or not. Um, So I think the other benefit of this movement and the reason it was so explosive was because it gave an anonymous platform for people to give their voice, give their story, contribute to it without having to be identified because it's not – obviously there's been amazing benefits from being, you know, being the Chanel Contos campaign and um, I've been able to, you know – use it for my like career and my personal and all of these other things, but it's also come with massive downside, massive social media hate, um, all of this sort of thing. And I think the fact that the teacher's consent platform gave people a chance to be part of this movement in an anonymous way to be like, yes, me too. Like I'm here as well, but I don't have to tell my friends. I don't have to tell my family. I don't have to have people ask me who the perpetrator is, um, has also been what's been so successful about it. And then, the kind of main core team who works on teacher's consent every day. Um, there's probably about five or six of us and, um, or not every day, you know, weekly now, but every day at the kind of the height of it, a few of them were men and I don't think it made sense for them to be leading this movement. And then there were also mainly older women and this was very much like a kind of a young collective voice. So mm. Yeah, it wasn't intentional. It just happened. Um, and then we actually intentionally tried to pivot, and that's still what we're trying to do, to pivot teacher's consent, to make teacher's consent, teacher's consent, so I can go on and um, do other things. But I think mm-hmm. the anonymity of it and the fact that I, yeah, kind of had the social awkwardness that comes with telling people that you're a survivor of sexual assault helped other people be able to be involved. It's fascinating. Uh, whether you like it or not, I, I I think, yeah, movements do need a figurehead and you were it. <laughs> you were it. But because you've had so much success, I mean the whole movement has had a lot of success and you've actually managed to get the curriculum changes that you wanted, that you were you were advocating for, and now uh, sex education is holistic uh, approach to sex education that includes looking at issues of power 
um, gender stereotyping, um, uh, consent, what it is, etc. That is now mandatory. So you've won that. And I, you know, saw it was beautiful to see. I think it was back in was it April of this year when you put out your post saying we did it, <laughs> mm-hmm. we did it, which is beautiful. So what? Now, though, for Chanel, do you do you, you sort of hinted there that you're trying to pivot away a little bit and allow Teach Us Consent to carry on mm. as, as a as an organisation? Do you mean without you? I don't mean without me. I think I'll always be, you know, a founder heavily involved in decision making and strategy. But basically, so the government's the Morrison government allocated Teachers Consent eight point five million dollars of um, funding as part of the National Plan of Violence Against Women and Children, and of preventing violence. Sorry, not <laughs> um, everyone says that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I can't run an eight point five million dollar company because I am a twenty four year old who <laughs> um, is just not ready or particularly. Um, yeah, that's not I, that's not what I want to do. So, teachers can now now what we need to do is implementation. And with kind of all respectful relationships, education, the biggest challenge has always been implementation because you can have whatever you want in the curriculum. It can be the most amazing curriculum in the world, but whatever that individual teacher tells that group of twenty kids is what's going to change that group of twenty kids' lives going forward. And um, I think there's a massive there'll be a massive focus on implementation with the Albanese government. One of their campaign election promises was a seventy seven million dollar consent education implementation package which is you know amazing like the, like that's just kind of unheard of um so it's it's really great and it's really great it's amazing chanel it is amazing it's more than just really great it is frigging amazing seriously what what you have what you have grown what you have you know this is born out of your efforts and let's not you know let's not forget that it is amazing um, yeah, so, you know, Teachers Consent now has also been commissioned to create consent education materials in order to support teachers, parents, community leaders, all these sort of things and how to deliver and all these sort of things. So, you know, that's going to take quite a few years to develop. But, um, yeah, in a personal capacity, I'm uh, going to work at the Australian Institute and launch a centre for sex and gender equality to kind of keep working on these high-level policies and see how it works out kind of rinsing and repeating this process of being like here's a problem here's a solution here's hundreds of thousands of people who care about it please do something um (laughs) i have a big smile on my face because i'm so delighted to to learn that you're coming back to australia and that you will be in canberra at the australia institute and what what a fantastic place to be and and it, it's very exciting too to to hear a young change maker like you acknowledge that you need to move on to other things and bigger, broader things. I, I do want to, whilst I know you're clearly going to be always involved in teachers' consent, but I do want to ask you, just finish off perhaps by asking you, coming back, sort of circling back a little bit, what has been the cost. There's always a cost in our efforts mm. and, and consequences of the big choices we make. What's been the cost for Chanel Contos? To be honest, it's been completely um, all the cost has been my own mental health and my well-being and um, the way I socialise and the way I see the world. I mean, it's my default to assume that man has sexually assaulted someone when I meet them now, which is a terrible thing to say and I'm sure that's going to make people feel really uncomfortable but it just is because the amount of people I've been told are rapists that I've previously known that I've been friends with that I'm like oh my god you're such a nice person 
And, you know, that still happened. It's really changed my perspective on really how we should be handling these situations. And, you know, a benefit is it's made me very much like forward thinking and being like, okay, well, I'm going to ignore the past and everything that matters is how you act from when you've been educated on something going forward. But, you know, I found it like while living in London, every time I would try to go out or something and, you know, have fun and socialize, I would get extraordinarily overwhelmed, which is something that never happened to me before. Random bursts of social anxiety, um, you know, trigger symptoms when, you know, engaging in sexual acts in my adult life, like all of these kind of just mental things and the fact that all I think about 24-7 is um, sexual assault, which is also why it's important, although teacher's consent is something that I will love forever and I'm so extraordinarily proud of the organization it's become. Um, I can't just keep working in the field of sexual assault because it's just not sustainable the way that I entered it um, with kind of no previous trauma training or anything and ultimately this type of sexual violence that education has the ability to prevent is one that ultimately comes from the way our society sees gender and the gender inequity in our society so working on that in a holistic way in other ways um I think will contribute to that whereas the type of rapists who are you know also serial killers and sadistic and violent education is not going to stop them from doing anything but we can really um by changing the culture we can prevent this wide-scale sexual abuse chanel i i i am just overwhelmed with um um admiration for you (laughs) i just i am and also care and concern i'm doing a big auntie thing here i'm glad you're coming to canberra but um uh i yeah, you're on a long journey and that journey is going to take all sorts of twists and turns and I'll be fascinated to watch how it plays out. But, you know, in the meantime, you clearly need to, you know, really take good care of yourself. Um, yeah. and also take Which I some, have started doing that way. Well, you need to do a lot of that. <laughs> and I was speaking from experience, you need to do a lot of that and you really need to be gentle on yourself. And... Mm. I won't go on about it, but you do, and um, otherwise you won't be able to sustain the sorts of things that you will do, that you need to do and you want to do. But that's enough of Virginia now. <laughs> I am, look, I, I, on behalf of everyone listening and, and on behalf of, and I know this sounds very grandiose, but on behalf of, of women and, and particularly the, the young girls around me and my family, you know, thank you for your efforts and you are an extraordinary woman a really extraordinary change maker and it's been such an honor speaking with you for change makers and i um i look forward to firstly watching you have a little break and a bit of a rest before you fire off onto the next big thing um, when you're back in australia but thank you so much for your generosity of sharing your story oh you're so welcome thank you so much for having me i really appreciate all your kind words Oh, look, let's see. as I say, it's my honour. And to all of you who've been listening, um, if you've stayed with us this far, and how could you not because it's been fascinating, thank you for being with us. And, and don't forget, there's uh, plenty more coming in the Changemaker series. And reach out and um, on all those various things I mentioned before and let us know um, your thoughts. And as I always say, don't forget, keep talking.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.